What's up, what's up? Glad you can make it tonight. <clears throat> I don't know about you, when I hear that song like in my truck, I, uh, I like think of this series now. I'm like, all right, yeah, church, yes. It kind of makes me like happier versus just like a cool beat. I'm like, yes. Um, the harbor, yes. Um, hey, so I'm gonna pray for us real quick. God, I, I just thank you uh, for this time. I thank you for these students. <clears throat> Lord, I ask that you would speak through me, uh, that you would speak to them. Uh, that you'd speak to me. Uh, Lord, that you would give us focus, you'd give us understanding. Uh, God, that your love would be uh, evident and prevalent and that you uh, just would be at work blessing this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Uh, If you got a phone, this is just a good time to put it on vibrate, on silent even. If you believe that God is a good God, that you've placed your faith in him and and you believe that he is a, a good God, then, then you've also got to believe um, that he has good things for you. And that he, he wants to, uh, that his word tells us good things. And so, if God is a, a good God who has good things for us, then I'm just going to encourage you um, and really plead with you that you would make yourself available in this moment to hear the good things from God, to hear the good words from God. So that's just my, my plea with you. You're going to make your own decisions, uh, but that's what I would, I would ask from you. Um, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been going through a series called Relationship Goals, where we've been kind of walking through the stages of relationship. We started to talk about what it meant to be single and what it looked like in our singleness, that God, uh, that the singleness is defined as, as unique, um, not alone, but individual, that alone is alone, but singleness is unique and individual. And it's in our singleness, our uniqueness, that God blesses our relationships through the uniqueness he's given us and the spiritual gifts he's given us individually. And then last week we talked about dating, that, that really dating is, is how we um, kind of vet someone for marriage, how we get to know someone, but really marriage preparation comes in learning to love people like Christ loved the church even before we begin today. That it, it is those, learning those and setting that foundation that will bless our dating relationships. And tonight I just want to talk about engagement. See, what we usually think about when we think about relationships is we know engagement is there, but really it goes from dating. Oh, we're dating and oh, now we're getting married, right? And so it's, it's dating to married and yet this engagement process is kind of blinded over. It's kind of fuzzed over, it's kind of passed over. And the problem is, is that our, our culture today says that engagement is the area of our relationship before marriage where we can now begin to act like we are married. That we can begin to practice marriage. That we can kind of test drive our marriage in the engagement process, see if it works for us. But the truth of God's word tells us that that marriage is not something to be test driven beforehand. That it's not something that that we try to do. And the biggest 
uh, engagement is, is one of the most crucial steps in a successful relationship, handling your engagement well. And the biggest lie that you can believe is that engagement is that time to allow some of the boundaries that we previously had in dating relationship to fall to the wayside. A lot of people, they get engaged in the next step. You know what the next step is? They move in together. If they get engaged, they moved in together, then they begin to get married. And so I know for all of you, this should be a long way out. I have a cousin that got married when she was 18 years old. She graduated on like a Friday, got married on a Saturday. And she's still married, and that was like 12 years ago. And she met the guy, not going to lie about this, on a chat room online they're awesome. And uh, where you play like an animal and you're like, like white dog wags its tail at spotted nibbles or whatever, right? Like, and so it was like this weird, weirdest wedding ever. So you could, all that to say, weird story. Didn't put that in the notes. All, I, all that to say is that for some of you, engagement may be sooner than, uh, than the majority of us. That the majority of you, the, the time when you're going to be engaged is somewhere in your 20s. And right now, you're anywhere from six to, to four years away from like when that's really going to happen. You may be even eight or nine years away from that. You may be 10 or 20. I mean, you, you may be getting engaged when you're 30, right? Which is not 20 years. That would make you 10. Uh, but I do math mediocrely. Um, but engagement is kind of a far way away from you. But the thing is, it's going to happen and it's going to come a time where you will be engaged. And so to handle that well is huge because it sets the foundation for really for how your marriage is going to go. It's the time, it's the last time before you're married where breaking up is an option. Don't you hear that? It's the last time before you are married where breaking up is an option and biblically God's totally okay with that. That's no big deal for the Lord. It's a time where you really can reassess your relationship, where you can really start to double check things. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians about relationship. That Paul is writing to the church and, and this is what he says to them. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. This is 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ, has Christ with that word? Bilalau. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What you need to know about being unequally yoked. To yoke something is to hook, and they used to do it with oxes, is they would hook two ox together to plow a field. And the problem was if, if one ox was, was much larger than the other ox, then it would only be one ox kind of doing the work. Or if, if one ox was very well trained and the other ox had no training, then there, there would be an issue. It would be unequally yoked that one would try to be going that way while one's trying to follow instructions. And so there's this thought of do not be like those oxen. Do not be unequally yoked. 
Do not partner or pair up with someone who is going the opposite direction as you. He says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ? And this is another word for the devil or for Satan. And it means basically destruction. In John 10, 10, we read it this morning. If you were upstairs this morning, the John 10, 10, Jesus says, I have come to give life and life to the full. And so if you added that right here, it's like what accord has Jesus who came to give life and life to the full with the one who brings destruction? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And it goes on, it says, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Won't you hear this? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, for we are the temple of the living God. Man, that should impact you big time if you really don't gloss over that, but take that to heart and really look at that. That God says, man, when you have come to know Jesus as your savior, that his blood is poured over every sin and every divot and every imperfection and everything that makes you feel unworthy in God's eyes. He says, no, you are absolutely worthy and you are perfect in my eyes. And not only are you worthy, but you are righteous because Jesus has died for you. He says, you are so righteous that I will make my dwelling among you through the Holy Spirit will live in you, the voice and the power of God in you. He says, man, you will be a temple that this isn't the temple, but you individually are the temple of the living God. He says, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And I will, walk with, I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He says, man, this morning we were talking about stepping out into the wild where, where God promises us not an easy road, but he says, man, but, but it's a road where you're not walking alone. He says, I'm gonna walk with you. So in his thoughts on relationship, he says, don't be unequally yoked. Why? Because you are the living temple of God. That if you are going to yoke yourself with someone, make sure they are standing on the same foundation. Make sure you're expanding the temple, not partnering the temple with a gas station. He says, man, don't be unequally yoked. In engagement, what you need to understand is when that time comes in your life that I hope you recall this. I hope you don't gloss it over and say, man, this isn't me, this is a long time. But I hope this sticks with you so that there comes a time when you're engaged that you begin to reconsider it. Because in engagement, it is a time that you have to double check that yoke. It's a time for you to begin to look and say, who is it that I'm beginning to partner myself with? It's a time to double check the yoke. It's a time for preparation. In the old, like in the Bible times, what would happen is a man would look at a woman and be like, dang, she's fine. And then he would go to her dad, man, he, he would go to her dad. Yeah, that's scary. I get it. I was pretty scared when I had to make that phone call too. It's scary, guys. But to be a man, you got to do scary things. Okay, girls, can you tell him, please? 
to, do, to be a man, you got to do scary things, okay? And so they would go to the dad. And then they would say, hey, your daughter's fine, but hopefully like in a better way than that. And then the dad would be like, sweet, you got a job? Okay, great. Like you can sustain yourself? Okay, great. And then they would pay a thing called a dowry. And a dowry was like a number of cattle and, or, or livestock and they would give some money and some things so that if the marriage, if in the marriage the husband died, the woman would have a nest egg to go back to. So it wasn't like he, him buying the woman. It was him saying, here's a nest egg for you to hold on to that if she dies, here's some resources for you. Or if I die, here's some resources for you to continue to take care of her with. It was almost like life insurance. And so he'd pay a dowry and then he would go back to his place where he was going to bring her to where they were going to live. And for up to a year, he would spend preparing this place. He would spend getting it ready and getting it perfect that they would, would uh, be apart for this time as he's just, he's just getting this marriage place ready. And not only was it a mar- like a place where they would live, but it was also gonna be like the honeymoon suite. And so he's just doing everything, right? He's laying the rose, rose petals out. He's making sure they got all their dishes. He's, they got all their stuff. And then when the time was ready, his friends would go back and they would grab the girl and they would bring her back. Gently grab her, I think. And then they would have the marriage celebration. And they would have it for like seven days and they would just celebrate this union where two temples of the Lord came together to form one foundation. That it was this, it was this amazing process of engagement where they really, men, they prepared for the woman to come and live with them. And our engagement should look very similar. For me, when we were engaged, we did a thing called marriage counseling. And I'm gonna tell you, don't ever get married unless you get a little bit of marriage counseling first. Because in marriage counseling, you begin to ask these really hard questions that you would never have thought about before, simply as what bank account are you gonna use? And, And who is supposed to do what in your house? What is your expectation of me as a husband? And what's my expectation of you as the wife? Does she work? Does she stay home? What does she think she's gonna do? You think she's gonna work, but she thinks she's gonna stay home. That's gonna end up with a terrible conversation three months down the road into your marriage if you don't handle that right away. And, and how are we gonna handle money? And then how do we talk through our fights? And what's permissible to say in a fight and what's not permissible to say in a fight? How many kids are we going to have? How are we going to raise our kids? Who's going to take the trash out? What is your expectation of me as far as doing chores? It's all of these things where you're really setting this foundation. You're really putting everything in place. You're, you're seeing, okay, if we're both wearing the yoke of this marriage, how are we going to trudge through life together? What does that look like for us? That it's this, it's this beautiful place that, that should be taken very seriously. Where you begin to really set that foundation for the marriage you will have. It's not the individual foundation that you have been setting between you and Jesus as he's given you your identity. But it's now saying, okay, I'm on my foundation and you're on your foundation. And if we yoke these foundations together, what does that look like? 
It is not a place. I want you to hear this. It is not a place where we eliminate the boundaries that we have placed and begin to act like we are married. It's not a place to eliminate the boundaries, but to assure the foundation. I want you to hear that. Because in engagement, I believe that it is the most tempting time for us to begin to be sexually immoral. For us to begin to say, man, I see marriage right there. And when we're married, we, we can do all the things that we've been wanting to do that the Lord designed us to do. And like, we're right there, like we're kind of almost married. So what's the big deal? We're gonna head that way. Here's the problem with that, it's psychological. Here's the problem with, with secret sex. Here's the problem with secret sex is that secret sex, it's sex that you do secretly that people don't know about that you should not have done or should not do. Triggers in your mind endorphins and an excitement. It triggers in your mind this sense of man, wow, like that's amazing. It's a, it's a rush that the Lord never intended or designed us to have. And so you're doing that and, and, you're, and you're sneaking around, but yet, yo, I know we're gonna get married, so it's not that bad. And you're sneaking around, and you're sneaking around, and you're sneaking around. And then one day you get married. And guess what goes away? All of the rush and the excitement that came from secret sex. That now it's okay. The Lord says it's okay. That we have a place, everyone expects us to do it. That's a weird thing. I mean, I'm gonna... That's another subject, seeing the parents after the marriage. But so everyone's like, yeah, like I expect you to be doing that. It's fine. Well, the rush of secret sex, of hidden sex, of, of that excitement, it goes away. And so then what tends to happen in that moment is you begin to look for that rush again. You begin to look for that excitement again. And so what often happens is that is when you see marriages start to go opposite directions from one another as they're looking for someone to fulfill that excitement to have secret sex with. And so what you see a lot of times is that then now they're, they're cheating on their spouse having secret sex and they're feeling that excitement, the spouse finds out, they get a divorce, they break up. Well, now these people get married and guess what? Secret sex goes away again. And so they've got to go and, and have secret sex with someone else. And, and so now they're broken up again. And now you're on marriage number three and marriage number four and marriage number five. And it's this craving and it's this beast that never goes away, that is never full, that is never satisfied, but is always hungry. Why? because we are fulfilling a desire that the Lord never intended for us to have. We're feeling a, an excitement that God said, no, that, that's not a, an excitement for me. That's not what I intended it to be. And so a lot of problems happen. Yet in the moment of engagement, in the moment that that is happening, we don't see it. And 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20 says, flee from sexual immorality. It says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually moral person sins against his own body. 
He creates a beast within his own body. It says men and even women who deal with this, that, as that number skyrocketing, who look at pornography, you know what it does? It creates pathways in our brain. Where when I'm home alone, there's a pathway now that I want to look at things I should not look at. That it literally cuts pathways in your brain where those, um, what are they called? The little sparks in your brain run where it moves and it creates these patterns. They say it's more addictive than heroin. It is more addictive than heroin if you're in here and you're doing that and you've tried to stop and you found it really hard, just know you're not alone, that it's more addictive than heroin. That's why it's really hard to stop. That you need to open up with someone about that, that you need to find accountability, that you need to make some drastic steps. He says, you need to flee from it. Because that person sins against his own body. That if you steal from someone, you sin against someone else and they suffer. If you fight with someone and you win, they suffer. If you fight with someone and you lose, you both suffer or you suffer the most. If you you, uh, cuss someone out, they suffer. He says, but sexual sin, you suffer. Sexual sin affects the soul, affects the heart, affects the mind, affects the body. He says that you suffer. He says, because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. The price he's talking about is the life of Jesus Christ. When Jesus, when God put flesh on, came to earth, died for you so that you may be freed from those sins, from those slaveries, from those addictions. So you may experience life and life to the full in him. He says, man, I bought you at a price. So if you're also in here and you're carrying around that guilt, you're kind of robbing that from the Lord. But that is not your guilt to carry around. He says, no, I bought that. I bought the sin and I bought the guilt that goes with that sin. I bought all the issues that happened because of that sin. I bought that. That that's mine, that's not yours. That's not yours to carry around, that's not yours to hold. And some of you in here who are dealing with some of those things, you need to come to a place in your life where you're on your knees before the Lord and you say, man, God, take that. Take it, please, Lord, take it. It's yours, you've bought it. It's not mine. Because God doesn't see you as sinful carrying around that guilt. He sees you as freed. He sees you as saved if you place your faith in Jesus. He says you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Because man, you you flee from those, flee from that immorality. Don't let engagement be the place where you test marriage out. Let it be the place where you double check the yoke where you set the foundation. The trick, and this is not in the Bible, this is just what I've learned from my own experience, what I've learned from others, the trick is to have a long and fruitful dating relationship. To have a relationship where you're really knowing and seeing the person that God has created. 
and if you come to the time where you need to ask them to marry you and you have even a shadow of a doubt that they're gonna say no, then you should probably recognize and that should probably be a red flag Hmm, maybe I shouldn't get married to them. If there's any doubt in your mind that they will say no, I'm not saying if you're nervous, because I was like so nervous, but there was no doubt in my mind that I could have asked Nolan in any way that I wanted to ask her, and she would have said yes. I could have texted her, will you marry me, with a picture of the ring, would have been the lamest proposal ever, and she would have texted me back, yes. There was no question in my mind if she was gonna say yes. Was I super nervous? Absolutely. Did I want to not do it? Yes, because I was so nervous. I was like, look, can we just like get past the nervous part and you just take this ring, right? Like, yes, I was nervous, but if there's any question in your mind whether they will say yes, dudes, like don't ask them. Like it's the wrong person or the wrong time. But the goal is to have a long relationship where you grow and know this person. And then a very short engagement. Have an engagement long enough for you to run through marriage counseling and to resolve some issues and to double check the yoke and then prepare for the wedding and then get married. Because the longer you are engaged, the more tempted you will be and the more time you are giving Satan to tempt you to do something that's going to hurt your marriage. And so I encourage you in that. Long relationship, short engagement. We got, married, we, got, we got engaged in May. We got married in September. Hey, that's long enough for us to do our marriage counseling and for her to plan this wedding because all I was doing was like saying yes to the things I thought she liked, right? I didn't care at all. I'm like, whatever, just get me on the stage. Like, let's just get married. But here's what the beauty is about God being for relationships. That's why I started this whole series is that God is for right relationships. You need to remember that, you need to know that, that God is for right relationships. And here's the beauty about it. If you go back to that word yoked and you go back to the thought of oxen, if you hooked one ox to a plow, they could pull roughly their body weight, they weigh between two and 3,000 pounds. If you hook two ox to a plow, they can pull up to 12,000 pounds that one can pull its body weight. Two can pull three times their body weight. He says the point of you being equally yoked is because when you do work for the kingdom, when you do the things I have planned for you, you should be far more effective together than you could have ever been by yourself. That the things I have planned for you are way outside your reach by yourself. But when you are together, you will do above and beyond your own capacity. That you will begin to do work for the kingdom of God that is greater than you alone could do that you will begin to experience the joy and the peace and the hope that comes through right relationships. That your foundations will match, that your yoke will match, that you will understand here's the weight in this relationship that I need to carry and here's the weight that you need to carry so that we are equally carrying the weight of this marriage as we walk through life together. 
as we walk forward for the kingdom of God, as we seek to glorify God together. And so I encourage you, that that is why we we need to so desperately seek right relationship. That we need to be people who say, man, I, I need to consider who I'm yoking myself to. I hear so much and too many times where I'm like, hey, I'm dating this dude or I'm dating this girl. And I'm like, where is that person? Oh, they don't really go to church. Okay. So why are you dating them? Oh, because, I, you know, I'm trying to be a good influence and I'm trying to da 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 That's called missionary dating. That is not in the Bible. That rarely turns out well. What happens if you have an ox that's trained and an ox that's not? Often, the ox that's not influences the one that is trained. It doesn't go the other way around very often. That often we are influenced by the negative or by the one that needs Jesus, but they don't know it, and so they're doing the things that aren't about Jesus. But the same happens in our relationships. So I encourage you, as you look at that next relationship, or as you consider the relationship you're in, there may be some hard, hard decisions and some hard conversations that need to be made in that. You may need to double-check that yoke right now before you go any further in this relationship. But when we are in right relationship, God has planned for us to do far greater things than we could ever do on our own. That he built us for community, for friendship, for family. Not to be by ourselves, but to be together. So that's my encouragement with you. As you step into this, you'd be considering that and that you'd run, flee, escape sexual immorality because that's hurting you. It's hurting your future. It's hurting how you'll handle relationships. You're just adding baggage that doesn't need to be in that marriage, in those future relationships.